There is a secret hiding behind modern life. It is a secret that is hidden in plain sight. And it wasn't hidden on purpose. In fact, it used to be quite a normal thing. But somewhere along the line, it was repressed, covered over, pushed deep down into our minds and forgotten about. But it never fully disappeared. It just changed its shape, and so it continued to thrive wearing a disguise. The disguise it wore was the grid. Patterns of lines drawn horizontally and vertically. In 1981, Rosalind Krauss, an art theorist in New York, set out to reveal the secret. You're listening to the Unknowing Art Podcast, the show that makes you unknow the art you thought you knew. My passion is art theory and philosophy, and this is my way of sharing it with you. If you like the show, give it a thumbs up. If you'd like to support the show, I would be honoured. Link in the description below. In 20th century society, the grid was everywhere. From urban planning, to buildings, to spreadsheets, grids were unavoidable. Today, we live in those cities that our grandparents built, and we know all too well the ubiquitous grid. Krauss had realised that the grid had emerged in modern art of the early 20th century, and has lingered ever since. In 1916, Kazimir Malevich paints his first black square and announces to the world that the square is a living, regal infant, the first step of pure creation in art. The square then was duplicated and repeated infinitely to form a grid-like pattern, which many artists have devoted their entire artistic life to. Pierre Mondrian, Ad Reinhardt, Robert Ryman, Agnes Martin, and Jasper Johns, to name a few. But in the entire history of humankind, this grid has never appeared in art. So how did the grid appear? And what is the secret the grid is hiding? In her essay, The Modernist Grid, Krauss tries to answer this question. And what she discovers is that the grid is hiding something. It is hiding a secret. And just like a therapist's patient, it is having trouble expressing the root of its cause. The grid knows something, but it does not have the means to speak it. Krauss then approaches this question as if she is the psychoanalyst trying to tease out this repressed truth. Behind every 20th century grid, there lies, like a trauma that must be repressed, a symbolist window, said Krauss in 1981. Krauss realised that the all-pervading grid that was so dominant in the 20th century and so emblematic of modernity was in fact the result of a trauma, a deep-rooted psychological trauma that can be attributed to a myth which permeated the 19th and 20th century. A myth 
which allowed two contradictory points of view to be held at once, and so causing its beliefs to be repressed, which, like all pathological forms in psychoanalysis, returns in disfigured and hidden ways. The modernist grid, Krauss declares, is emblematic of modernity, precisely because this grid is the return of this repressed myth. This is quite an odd thing to say, because the grid might first be considered emblematic of the early 20th century, because it demonstrates its modern values of a new secular world based on a rationally organised society. Of course, it was during this time that the rise of a new study called psychoanalysis would reveal the traumas and discontents that lurk beneath modern society. It is in this vein that Krauss suggests that lurking behind the grid is an unresolved trauma, and that the grid is emblematic of modernity, not because it demonstrates modern rational values, but because it reveals a modern trauma. One of the modern values held by artists at the beginning of the 20th century was a distrust in artworks that tried to replicate nature. Artists saw the act of replicating as a failure to express truth. Therefore, art that expresses truth must itself be a living form rather than a copy of a living form. In other words, the artwork must be an end in itself rather than a symbol which refers to something else. It was this modern value that saw art become increasingly abstract and, until the Surrealists, did away with symbols. Unlike the original, more technical use of the grid by the Italian Renaissance painters, like Leonardo da Vinci who mapped his canvas with a grid in order to accurately replicate the perspective of the landscape he was trying to paint. The mapping of the modernist grid is completely different. The mapping of the modernist grid is a transfer where nothing takes place. In pointing out this difference, Krauss drops her first bombshell on the modernist grid. That the grid is in fact a naked and determined materialism. Krauss writes the following. Perspective was the demonstration of the way reality and its representation could be mapped onto one another. The way the painted image and its real-world referent did in fact relate to one another, the first being a form of knowledge about the second. Everything about the grid opposes this relationship, cuts it off from the very beginning. Unlike perspective, the grid does not map the space of the room, 
or a landscape or a group of figures onto the surface of a painting. Indeed, if it maps anything, it maps the surface of the painting itself. It is a transfer in which nothing changes place. The physical qualities of the surface we could say are mapped onto the aesthetic dimensions of the same surface. And those two planes, the physical and the aesthetic, are demonstrated to be the same plane. Considered in this way, the bottom line of the grid is a naked and determined materialism. Now that we understand the modernist grid is a materialism, let's look at two examples of modernist grids. We will start to see that the trauma will begin to reveal itself. Paris, 1920. Pierre Mondrian paints composition C, one of the earliest examples of his most well-known compositions. Different size rectangles, coloured white, black, yellow, red and blue, perfectly balanced on the canvas, separated by grey uniform horizontal and vertical lines, giving the impression of an asymmetrical yet harmonious grid. Mondrian based his grid on an idea he called neoplasticism. Described in his own words, this new plastic idea will ignore the particulars of appearance. It should find its expression in the abstraction of form and colour, that is to say, straight line and the clearly defined primary colour. Mondrian thinks that the particulars of appearance, the things which we perceive, are always going to be tainted, in some way, by our own biases and preconceptions. In other words, our memories. Take a circle painted yellow. Already this will remind us of the sun. We can't help it. When we look at paintings, we will start to see things from our life. And so we start to read the painting as containing symbols. And to read the painting symbolically as a collection of signs which refer to an external world that exists outside of the painting is for Mondrian a form of blindness. You are not looking at the painting in front of you. Instead, you are looking through the painting into your own mind. Reading his painting symbolically is problematic for Mondrian because he believes that art is, quote, the unification of man with the universe. Therefore, Mondrian would refuse to paint the circle yellow. He even had a falling out with his friend Theo van Dausberg about the use of diagonal lines. Instead, Mondrian would only paint rectangles horizontally and vertically, using only primary colours. In the 1920s, the grid was so absent in art that it was a very good way for Mondrian to try to pare his paintings down to its most elementary universal level. Removing any symbols and representations of the world, Mondrian wanted his work to be pure abstraction believing that it would express a deeper truth of the universe than simply the superficial facade of daily life and of mundane perception. And he did this with such a passion that pours forth with the intensity of revelation, a kind of religious devotion which structured not only his paintings, but his life.
York, 1963. Agnes Martin paints one of her most famous grid paintings. She named it Night Sea. A large canvas, bordered with gold, holding within it 3,000 evenly hand-painted rectangles, coloured with lapis lazuli, divided by a thin golden grid which seems to shimmer and glow. Martin believed that she was able to express the subtle feelings that are exclusively in the mind. And just like Mondrian, she rejects painting what is seen. Whereas Mondrian attempted to express an abstract universal truth, Martin attempted to express the truth of inner experience. Martin thought that when you paint the worst thing to come into your head is yourself. Once even saying, I'm very careful not to have ideas because they are inaccurate. Martin wants to paint those unspeakable feelings, such as innocence. For centuries, artists have tried to represent innocence by painting scenes full of symbols which refer to the idea of innocence. A baby lamb, for example, cuddled by its mother or children playing in the garden. They create a visual language to understand the concept of innocence. But this is the opposite to Martin, who wants to paint innocence itself so that we might directly experience the feeling of innocence while looking at her painting. Christina Rosenberger, an Agnes Martin scholar, describes the religious attitude that surrounds the reception of Martin's work. Eisler is far from the only critic who understands Martin's abstract paintings in terms that suggest religious devotion. Critic Michael Kimmelman has written that Martin's art is rich in complexity and passion of a sort that seems to pour forth with the intensity of revelation. Hilton Kramer also characterizes the experience of seeing a Martin painting in religious terms, writing that her art has the quality of a religious utterance, almost a form of prayer. The recent retrospective of Martin's work met with similarly rapturous reviews. Peter Sheldahl, one of Martin's most perceptive critics, observed that the climb through the Guggenheim's retrospective feels like a secular pilgrimage. Your heart, he cautions, may be ambushed by rushes of emotion. Martin thoroughly understood the physical properties of her materials and their symbolic meaning, intentionally using the materials of religious devotionals, lapis lazuli and gold, to create a painting that achieved that highest of spiritual acts, revelation. It's perhaps no great surprise, then, that Martin herself is often written about in terms that suggest a deity, a desert saint, a sage, a cult figure, an artist's artist. For the art historian Susan Hudson, Martin's Night Sea stands as the last of her process-based works before she turned from oil to acrylic and sought to express emotions of lightness and purity, unburdened by evidence of human struggle. Night Sea is important because it is one of Martin's final uses of symbolic language. It shows her ultimate distrust in symbolism. Just like Mondrian, Martin's paintings reject any form of narrative and discourse. They become purely visual. Both Mondrian and Martin and countless other modern painters of grids 
so strongly tried to remove symbolic language and representation from the artwork so as to create a purely visual aesthetic order. Krauss is absolutely right in saying that the modernist grid is a naked and determined materialism because the rejection of language in favour of a pure visuality means that the actual material that the work is made of becomes the aesthetic of the work. After painting the Night Sea, Agnes Martin is fully aware of the material nature of the grid and stops using materials that are symbolic. The modernist grid, Krauss says, declares itself autonomous and autotelic. What this means is that the grid is not a superimposed symbol that is cast like a net over the artwork, but rather is inscribed into the artwork's own materiality. The grid generates out meaning and does not refer to things outside of itself. So why then is the grid understood in terms of religious devotion? Artists and critics alike say such things as the grid has a quality of religious utterance, almost a form of prayer, a secular pilgrimage. Even Mondrian and Martin always maintained that the grid was a stairwell to the universal, to a deeper truth of the world. Doesn't this religious intrusion of speech contradict all that the modernist grid stands for? Krauss writes, the barrier that the grid has lowered between the visual arts and those of language has been almost totally successful in walling the visual arts into a realm of exclusive visuality and defending them against the intrusion of speech. To look at a painting of a grid and to consider its significance to be in its material aspects that are so hostile to literature, to narrative and to discourse seems a contradiction when at the same time we speak about their grids in terms of being, mind, spirit, the universal, and revelation. This dilemma between a secular material reading of art and a spiritual reading of art, between one which employs vision and one which employs language, was paramount at the end of the 19th century and this battle played out in various different ways throughout society. During this time, there was an absolute rift between the secular and the sacred, and art had become a refuge for religious thought and emotion, where, Krauss says, it has remained as a secular belief ever since. Most of the writing about art at the end of the 19th century was spiritual in tone and often spoke of themes of universality and transcendence. For countless reasons, the spiritual tone was largely destroyed in the aftermath of the First World War and then obliterated after the Second, where we find ourselves now in a situation where it is indescribably embarrassing to mention art and spirit in the same sentence. The strange thing about the grid, however, is that it tried to be both secular and sacred. For Krauss, the peculiar power of the grid is its extraordinarily long life in the specialised space of modern art arises from its potential to preside over this shame, to mask and to reveal it one at the same time. The secret behind the modern grid the shining emblem of the modern world, 
the thing which looks so irreversibly modern and so visually opposed to the centuries before it, is that it smuggles in spiritual undertones. The thing which is most modern is at the same time a refuge for spiritual emotion. We think we are dealing with the secular logic of a material work, but for some reason the grid hums and chants and throws us into belief. Why in the world does this happen? Well, Krauss has an answer. In the next episode, we will see exactly why this trauma appeared and how certain conditions throughout the 19th century combined together in the early 20th century to make the grid a new aesthetic force in the world. <laughs>